Shrink Wrap Radio number 870, psychologist Dr. Deborah Sarani on living with depression. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. It's Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Dr. Deborah Sarani. We'll be discussing her book, Living with Depression, Why Biology and Biography Matter Along the Path to Hope and Healing. A licensed psychologist of more than 30 years, Sarani outlines the various forms of depression, a variety of treatments, and methods for living with depression and getting help. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Deborah Sarani, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. I'm so happy to be here today. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm really glad to have you here because you have a, a very important story. And we're going to be discussing your book, Living with Depression, Why Biology and Biography Matter Along the Path to Hope and Healing. And so I think this is uh, going to be very uh, meaningful to people who, <clears throat> who struggle with depression uh, at one point or another in their lives. And the book is rooted in your own personal experiences as both as someone who's has suffered from depression over the course of your life mm. and also as a psychotherapist who whose work has been informed by your own experiences with depression. That's true. Very true. Yeah. <clears throat> so we'll skip around a little bit. One of the things I'm I'm uh, initially wondering about is were there environmental family predictors? Uh, if somebody had known your family history, would they have found evidence for, oh, there's going to be issues here, maybe? Yes, indeed. And such a good question, because as clinicians, we look for that early narrative to help inform us. Right. Um, but at the time, um, there were quite a few mood disorders in the family. Nobody uh -huh. really talked about it. So there's a definite genetic lineage there. Um, there were also um, difficulties in the family system, uh, certain marital issues that were going on at the time. Um, I was one of three girls and I was the um, never do bad, always do good, be quiet kind of girl. 
which certainly (laughs) muted a lot of the depressive, um, persistent depressive disorder or dysthymia that was certainly going on at that time. So yeah, um, I was not a great student, but I pulled my weight. Um, I struggled terribly with a lot of things. Um, Somebody really paying attention would have seen I joined every school team and dropped out of every school team. I joined every activity and then dropped out of all of those things. Um, yeah, um, there were totally signs there, but at the time, nobody, you know, I, there w- I wasn't a squeaky wheel, so it was easy for me to be missed. Uh-huh. Yeah. And were there, uh, you mentioned genetics. Um, <clears throat> do you know any, anything about the genetic? predisposition in the family? Well, um, uh, I I knew that my uh, both my paternal grandparents struggled with depression. Uh, it was never spoken about, but I they were they were they were sad. They were uh, sad, slow, uh, lived in the you know dark, dark, not a lot of fresh light and uh, activity and spark in their house. Oh. Um, I came to see that my dad was struggling with um, uh, a cyclotymia. I was able to see that as a professional and um, other uh, bipolar pieces and unipolar pieces in my um, maternal side. So both sides of the family, a tremendous amount of uh, mood disorder, um, which was easy for me to see in the rearview mirror. But sure. it, it grew. I grew up at a time that nobody really spoke about any of those things, and nobody yeah. went to therapy for any of those things. Right, right. What were the economic circumstances of your family? Uh, we were um, uh, a middle, upper middle class, I'd say, uh, in a suburb of Long Island, which is um, was a very nice community where we lived. My dad was a very, very bright man. Um, he was a firefighter for the FDNY. Oh, wow. And on his time off, he trained to become a chiropractor. Oh. And because uh, firefighters would work three days and be off four days. So many firefighters at the time had second careers. And he was one of the first licensed uh, chiropractors in the state of New York. So, um, and my mom raised us until I was about 12 and then she went back to work. Um, my parents were older when they had us, they waited about 10 to 12 years after marriage to have us because my uh-huh. dad was going through chiropractic school. So we never really wanted for anything. We never, you know, we never really, uh, we didn't, we didn't have a lot, but we didn't need a lot. Uh-huh. So the finances were never really um, a big issue, um, but I, you know, I would work to buy my own car. Um, I did pay for my own education and take loans out and things like that. But it was also easier back then to go to local universities and things like that. It wasn't an arm and a leg right. for, for those loans. Right. Um, right. Financial financially, things were uh, probably one of the better things um, going on in my family. So take us through your first depressive episode. How old were you when that happened? Well, um, it was 1980. I was 19 years old. And this is a time where, you know, there's no cell phones. There weren't really even answering machines. So 
if you weren't there to pick up a ringing phone, you weren't there to connect yeah, with somebody else. Right. And I had always kind of struggled with my dysthymia at that time. Um, and I knew I couldn't go away to school. I just didn't have the capacity to do that. So I went to a local community college and I commuted and I worked and I did really super well um, in community college. My, for whatever reason, I think I had a little more agency and I was able to do a little more than in earlier times in my life. So I was able to succeed academically in ways that previously I, I didn't. And, um, but it was hard making friends because it was a commuter school. So I started to um, do well, graduated from that community college and got a scholarship to a local university at Hofstra University. And you. when I transferred there, it was a very different experience from community to a um, somewhat um, uh, well-credentialed, you know, locally prestigious university. And I really, I struggled socially. I, I felt like I didn't fit in. It was hard for me to meet people. And I started to descend slowly into a depressive episode. It started with not wanting to get out of the car when I got to school. Uh, mm -hmm. Then it was, uh, I don't really want to get up to go to school. And then eventually it was, I don't want to get out of bed to go to school. Yeah. Um, and my mother was working, my father was working, my sisters were doing their thing. And it was easy for me to get lost, become invisible. Cause I, I would go to school after everybody left. So, and I would come home before everybody came home from work. So it was easy for them to not know that I wasn't going. And um, very bad, corrosive, negative thinking, not wanting to be alive anymore. I can't, I, nothing's good, um, which was really alarming because I had never really had terrible thoughts like that. And uh, before I knew it, I was not attending school at all. Um, and I didn't tell anybody and my thoughts got worse and worse and there were guns in the house and I had learned how to use all these guns and I made a plan and decided to act on the plan one morning. This is what I'm going to do and mm -hmm. thinking, well, this will be good because then I won't feel this terrible ache and pain and sadness and despair. Yeah. And all things. Yeah. Um, but I luckily didn't do it. There was something about opening the door where the guns were. The doorknob was so cold, Dr. David, that it, it shocked me. It kind of, it did something. It made me for a moment, have some, some lucid thinking, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Your sister, yeah. your sister's going to come home and find you. What are you doing? Yeah. And it stopped me luckily. And so I called my mother. I said, you got to get home here. I'm in a really bad way and I need help. And the next day I got to a psychologist who told me I was in a very bad depressive state and he saved my life and changed my life. And yeah. it's hard for me to believe I ever felt or thought those things once, you know, you recover from that, 
very depressive episode. The frontal lobe of the brain really functions better (laughs) when we're not depressed. And it's terrible when we are because we think this is this is a good solution. Makes sense. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. So there was that risk of suicide. What um Mm. so what did the psychologist do for you? Were there uh did he give you a diagnosis? Did he hospitalize you? Uh I um I didn't get hospitalized, which interestingly pr- probably would occur now. <laughs> uh, it didn't happen then. Um, what did happen was I went back the next day, and I went back the next day, and I had about five sessions that first week to stabilize, um, and I learned about what this was that I had had of. Uh, a dysthymia all, all my life. And that because of these other situations going on, I kind of moved into this double depression into an ep- uh, present episode. Tell us about the dysthymia because everyone may not be familiar with that uh, term. Well, um, dysthymia used to be um, what we would call, um, according to the DSM, it's a chronic form of depression that doesn't ever get as bad as depressive episodes can. But for the most part, it's so chronic that sometimes you don't even realize that you're struggling with this low, I call it a low-grade depression. Yeah. You're just not, you're not content, but you're not despaired. Your thinking isn't really clear, but it's not impaired. Um, And it's, I, I would sometimes describe it as being like Eeyore, the donkey from uh, um, Winnie the Pooh that, you know, oh, gee, yeah, everything's bad. And there's this this blah malaise that you live mm-hmm. with day in and day out. And what happens for some children and adults is that you don't even know that you really are struggling with an illness because you become so complacent with it. And I, yeah. I just thought everybody was tired and thought sad things. Um, and, and some of the risk when you have an undiagnosed depression like dysthymia or, or what's now called persistent depressive disorder is if it's untreated and you have other triggers or life stressors that stack on top, it can push you into a, a more significant level of a depressive episode and having both is called uh, having a double depression. It's it's doubly hard, <laughs> Yeah, uh, but there are many ways to get better. Um, diagnosis is key. Um, so I, I was diagnosed and um, really began to respond to talk therapy. That's what I was doing at 19 years old back in the 90s, uh, back in yeah. 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about that, <laughs> about talk therapy. Uh, uh, how did you experience it as a 19-year-old? I mean, you had somebody listening to you and caring. It, it was amazing because my family was a very loving family, very affectionate, loving. We were there for each other and fierce to protect each other, but we never really talked about anything. So it was, I was so fragile at that first appointment 
that uh, I think I would have done just about anything. And I was very grateful to find a therapist that was sensitive and gentle and warm and just there for me. And it, it was truly an amazing experience to feel important and listened to because I had never had that before and seen. That's what I would say really was life-changing for me is that when I walked in that room, that that therapist was there to know me and learn who I was and help me understand why I was going through things, what strengths I had, what I could do with those strengths to help my weaknesses. It was so such such a wonderfully helpful experience that I had to become a psychologist because it changed my life so dramatically. Yeah. Now, was this therapist a uh, male or female? Was a male therapist, um, and he was affiliated locally with Adelphi University in a postdoctoral psychoanalysis training. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I did not know at the time at 19 what any of that meant. No. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't, I just thought, you know, a therapist was a therapist, but there were many different kinds of therapists and many different kinds of training. And this just so happened to suit me and my needs. And um, I remained in therapy for over almost 15 years with this man. 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I, mm-hmm. I assume the the frequency uh, changed. Yes, I used to go three times a week. Um, and as I got better, I would go once a week. And he was there as I, you know, finished college and the schools I went to to become a psychologist. As I got married, um, just a significant person in my life that held uh, appropriate boundaries was always thoughtful and mindful. Uh, I I learned so much from him as a clinician and yeah. also really healed because of the type of clinician he was. Yeah. And uh, I I still from time to time I we cross paths and I talk to him and I say to him, you know, and he says, Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's sweet. And um were there any uh, any pharmaceutical treatment at that time during that period? No, um, which was interesting. Um, you know, I I look back and Prozac was just being born, so to speak, uh-huh. and I suppose I responded well with the um, frequency of treatment that there wasn't a recommendation for some tricyclic antidepressants or something more involved, but no, no medication. So my first depressive episode, I recovered from and went into remission from and remained in therapy longer, longer than maybe I, I I mean, I certainly didn't need to stop. I wanted to continue because there was a journey to psychoanalysis that I really enjoyed, but I prepared when I had my daughter to be ready for a postpartum onset. And I'm glad I knew about that because I did. I had a terrible postpartum onset within hours of delivering her. And um, 
about two and a half to three weeks later, I reached out and I found a psychiatrist and I said, I'm ready to try uh, Prozac because it was the almost the middle 90s. So it had been out for a while. Unique experience because not only did I feel better over the course of six to eight weeks, I felt better than ever. I realized that there was a level of depression that uh, really got um, eased with the use of the antidepressant for me. For yeah. Me. So it was a very powerful experience to see talk therapy and um, pharmaceutical therapy and the differences that both offer. Um, and um, I've remained on it because I have tried to come off of it and my depressive symptoms come back. So it can be a little frustrating to see like, oh gosh, the dysthymia is still there. It's it's, yeah. it's like a shadow, but just like I wear glasses or I take my high blood pressure medicine, I take my antidepressant. Yeah. So there's, um, <clears throat> and yet despite all of this, there's so much uh, success in your life in terms of your educational experience in graduate school, it sounds like, and mm -hmm. and you know, getting into these programs, doing well in them, uh, getting married, mm -hmm. having one child, more one children, child. Yeah, one, one child, yeah. Uh, so all of that's very positive, and uh, but there were other other episodes that have come subsequently, right? Yes, I found that, um, you know, with each major life change or trigger, uh, when my father passed, which was about uh, 10 years or so ago, I said, oh, because he had been ill for a while. And I said, I, I got to get ready for this. And uh, it still packed a punch. It was still so hard in spite of the fact that I was prepared and I reached out to my prescribing um, practitioner and said, you know, maybe we'll just think about doubling or getting things ready in case I need it. And um, it was great to have all that forethought because I did need, you know, additional doses just to kind of get through those, those times. But it's also helpful for us as clinicians to know that when we work with patients, that there are some people whose life stressors really press heavily on their physiology and their emotional experiences, uh -huh. while sometimes others can float a little better. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't able to do that. So I know, you know, I have some current issues going on now, with my in-laws health and my mother's health. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm as ready as I can be to see those early symptoms. So they don't, kind of root themselves in a way that it takes me by surprise because that's yeah, so the tricky thing depression sneaky uh-huh sneaky. <laughs> sneaky yeah it's yeah sneaky. say a bit more about that that's uh that sounds like a really important thought oh <laughs> uh, the the one thing that i will say um living with depression and working with patients who have depression is that i'm i'm never surprised by a story that says and then out of nowhere, I started to, you know, really feel depressed. 
And the person catches themselves saying, well, it's not really out of nowhere because I know it's from A, B, C, or D, but man, I didn't think it would get me so fast. Yeah. And I, I would see that too. Um, I thought with the birth of my daughter that the onset of a postpartum depression, I didn't think it would be that fast. It was, it was hours and I had a great pregnancy. I was feeling so good. I felt really nice. I was ready, wanted to be parents, you know, the whole thing. And yeah, it, depression doesn't care if you're rich or poor. <laughs> doesn't care if, you know, you're you're healthy or not healthy. It just wants to get in there and deform and disorganize and really try and um, make you think the world is a terrible place that you don't need to live in anymore. It's yeah, really, so, uh, sounds it's like a, you're. It's a beast. It's sounds a beast. like you, you sort of. Uh, personify depression as if it's a, you know, an, an evil spirit, an evil force, uh, something like that. Listen, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure you experience this too with certain patients in recovery, how they'll say, how did I ever think those thoughts are, you know, I'll work with kids who say, I know you had to put me in the hospital and I was mad at you, but I'm glad you did because I don't even, I don't even remember thinking those thoughts. How did they ever happen? Yeah. So it's 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 so important, you know, with shows like yours and and books and and even movies or news media that really helps us understand that this isn't something that happens from a, a weakness of character, or you're just tired and lazy or you can't snap out of it. There's a real physiological illness that that occurs, and some of your life narrative and the ways that you've learned to cope can make it easier for you to deal with depression. And in my case, did not. I mean, I was, there was no way I would have been able to survive um, my childhood and my illness without, without, um, you know, have, having help. Yeah. So talk to us a bit about the types of depression. Um, there's depression and there's bipolar and maybe others, uh, Tell us about that. I remember when I um, first went to a psychiatrist who was recommended through the postdoctoral training center that I was uh, getting my certificate in. And I was a little nervous to go because I felt, you know, embarrassed, like, you know, gosh, I, I'm doing this. And really, can I practice? Can I do this? And he had said to me that, you know, there are so many people that struggle with different kinds of illnesses and that as long as you can function well and you're consistent with your treatment, he saw no reason that I couldn't be successful in doing what I wanted to do. Yeah. And he was the first person to really help me understand with depression, there are two, two poles, two extremes, unipolar, meaning your depression kind of lingers in this very low ebb, sad, despairing, dark place. And another extreme, which is the other end, which is the bipolar end, where you have very expansive, almost high octane, elevated states of happiness, joy, maybe even what, what the Greeks called mania, 
which is where we get the name from. And for a while, when I came in with my unipolar experience, I remember him sitting on the edge of his seat and, and I would say to him, Dr. Larry, you know, it looks like you're waiting for something. And he would say, yeah, I'm waiting for the other polarity to show because generally we see that. And I had explained to him that, you know, I did notice things in my father and my grandfather. So we were primed to see maybe an elevation or for my depressive episode to move into another level, but it never did. So I have a unipolar depression, which is called uh, persistent depressive disorder. Um, and the unipolar depressive disorders are um, major depressive disorder, um, persistent depressive disorder, and, and a whole other, uh, there are many others that fall under that category. But when we talk about bipolar, this is where you not only experience depression, but you also experience things that are elevated. And you can have bipolar one, which is what the general public tends to see in movies, in books. Um, this is the very highs and lows, people spending you know, lots and lots of money or falling into days where they're, or weeks where they're sleeping. Um, and then there's something called bipolar two, which is a, a bipolar experience, but it's less intense and it's a little more slippery to diagnose because you don't have mania, you have hypomania. Um, and then there's another one called- And, and, and hypomania is what, a sort of uh, less extreme Correct. experience of, el of elation. Correct. So where somebody with mania might be spending thousands and thousands of dollars, somebody with hypomania might be, as another example, just buying, you know, 25 cans of coffee because they're on sale. Um, <laughs> it's not it's not as extreme and noticeable. The sleepiness um, uh, or, or the, the, the downtime of depression may not seem as intense. So we call it like a low-grade bipolar, and it is hard to detect. Yeah. Um, and then there's something even lighter than that, which is called cyclotimia. And that's just kind of like a, a moody and elevated and then comes down to irritability and sadness back up to a little elevated state, which is even trickier. So, you know, as much as it's important if you have a foot issue, you, you don't go to a hand doctor. When you have a mental health issue and you think it's a mood disorder, you kind of want to try and get somebody who knows what's going on and is trained in mood disorders. Yeah, yeah, good, good advice there. Well, what about suicidality? You know, you mentioned that um, that today you probably would would have been sent to uh, to uh, for hospitalization for even mm. a short a short period. Um, I assume that's because you you would have reported suicidal feelings and that would have got that would have made that happen yeah yeah i mean i i had a plan and um actually um i i, I memorized but mine is um was very extreme because it was interrupted i not only had a thought the plan was in action and it was interrupted 
The next one after an interrupted is a completed suicide. So I was very, very high risk. And yeah, yeah um, you know, we we know so much more now about the intent of suicide, how to how to take notice, how to look for certain signs. It is a preventable death. Um, I should also say at the time when I was struggling, I had lost a friend to suicide. So that was there. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly would have been in the hospital. And nowadays, um, the experience there can can be one where it's not like the movies or one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's it's particularly if if you can call ahead and get a bed and let a person let the team know that your patient's coming in there are really wonderful ways to to help make sure a person's safe while they're um getting the help they need yeah 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 um is there a hope for a cure out there or or not mm. Well, as somebody who's a lifer with my antidepressants, I feel as close to um, as good as possible. Um, a cure? I don't know. I think I think as much as critics will say, especially with the soft science of psychology that we do, even though there's evidence of brain structures that are different with depression, neurochemistry that's different, certain electrical activity that's different. We don't really understand the origins specific to each person because I think they're so variable. Yeah. And as such, I think it does become a difficult thing to talk about cure. I like to talk about quality of life and, and living well with an illness because I consider right. myself living as well as I can with my yeah. illness. Yeah. Um, you know, I have side effects from the meds I take, but I live with them. I have weight gain. I have night sweats, but okay. So, you know, so I, I, you know, go to sleep with a sheet uh, over my, you know, pajamas and, you know, I'm married and have my kids. My biological directives are are done. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have to secure a mate these days and I do the best I can, um, but there's always more uh, research looking to understand because there are many people different than myself because I consider myself someone who has found uh, remission and recovery um, with my medication. But there are others who have treatment-resistant depression, and that's more the norm than not. About 60% of children and adults will not find relief with traditional methods. Uh-huh. So wow. research research keeps going forward, and that's a good thing because there are many people who don't feel well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I like uh, what you say about living well with depression. And one thing that's clear is that you've learned some cognitive strategies mm. Uh, mainly of self-acceptance. Yes. To, to and, instead, and of, instead of running yourself down, you say, okay, this is, is this is like I have a physical disease. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't shame somebody who has cancer. Why should I shame myself for having depression? I don't catastrophize. I try to use certain types of cognitive reframing to be positive and say, you know, okay, um, I limit what I watch on television or I read on the news. It, it can trigger me. Sure. Um, there are certain things that I will deliberately not do. I don't drink. I don't, I don't use any recreational drugs. I just don't want to tip the scale in any bad way. Right. Um, and sometimes I say no more than maybe my loved ones wish I would, but I know what I can and can't do. Yeah, and what yeah. I'm willing to risk is it's too fragile. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's great that you have that self-knowledge. And it, um, and it only happens because of therapy and it, and it happens yeah. because of psychoeducation and all those things. Cause other people, other listeners can find that too. Yeah. That. You know, one of, one of the great resources that's in your book is you have an appendix of people with various varieties of, uh, of depression that they've lived with who are, famous, accomplished, well-known, and actors and actresses and mm. and uh, authors. And are there some that come to mind that you can just rattle off? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, the, President Abraham Lincoln would often talk about his melancholy and depression and and that it provided him with an empathy that enabled him to really understand what was going on in our history and make it so that everyone could live a life of quality. And, and there are many people who think that without that, he might not have been the type of president and the man that who wrote the Emancipation Proclamation and, and really helped end slavery. Um, there are, and this is not something that I, I borrow from Dr. K. Redfield Jameson. She wrote a great book, Touched by Fire, which talks about all the brilliant poets, artists that struggle with bipolar disorder. So I borrowed this from her. She started okay. this decades ago. Yeah. But I wanted to focus on, um, you know, someone like Serena Williams, who's one of the greatest tennis players, and she struggled with depression. And she talks openly about it and she's champion. So it gives us hope to be able to say, well, if she can kind of move through things that gives me inspiration, yeah. um, uh, all kinds of artists. I mean, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan and his music, when he talks about sadness and depression has this depth and texture that, you know, has made him appreciate his life, but also understand struggle. Yeah. So there are politicians and so many people who, when they talk openly about their struggle with depression, they say it's okay. They help destigmatize it. They help make the ordinary person say, well, if they can get through it, maybe I can. So that's why yeah. I wanted to have that um, and include all kinds of characters and high profile people, a lot of sports people. Um, um, and that leaders who lead countries who sometimes, you know, oh, if you're emotional, you can't lead a country. Winston Churchill did a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this has been delightful. As as we wind down a bit, I wonder if, if 
uh, I can ask you, what are the takeaways that you want people to to uh, leave this conversation? That there's no shame living with a mental illness. That if you're struggling with one, try not to compare yours to somebody else's. And you want to find someone who understands your particular issues, validates you, and helps you to find recovery because there is hope out there. Well, that is a great message to leave us with. Uh, Dr. Deborah Sarani, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. It was a delight to meet my recent guest, Dr. Deborah Sarani. One of the things that stands out to me as I reflect on our interview is the sweetness of her personality. She's had to work very hard for the status in the profession she's achieved, not only as the author of the book, Living with Depression, Why Biology and Biography Matter Along the Path to Hope and Healing, but also her many other professional achievements. She's a senior professor at Adelphi University, publishing academic articles on depression and trauma. She's appeared as an expert on various media outlets, including ABC, CNN, Newsday, The New York Times, Psychology Today, and The Washington Post, and has also appeared on radio shows on CBS, NPR, and more. So accomplished and yet so very humble, a humility born of her personal, lifelong struggle with depression, which she shares quite candidly in her book and in our meeting. We learned that she suffered her first major depression around age 19. There were many predisposing factors. She was chronically unhappy as a child. There was a family genetic history. She felt unpretty and tended to be a loner, feeling she did not compare favorably to her peers, despite the fact that she was clearly smart and did well in school. Deborah grew up in an affluent Long Island neighborhood. She was loved by her parents, but her distress went unnoticed by them as they were focused on their own careers. There were guns in the home, and her pain finally led her to plan to shoot herself. She had the gun in hand, but her concern for her family having to clean up the mess stopped her from carrying out her suicide plan. To her parents' credit, they got her right into therapy when she told them what she had almost done. She was lucky to get an incredible therapist who initially worked with her five days a week to get her through the crisis. They then worked together for 15 years, and she credits that relationship for her life and her own decision to become a therapist. Despite several other episodes over the years, she was able to advance professionally, get married, and have children. From her own experiences, she learned a lot about the varieties of depression and other mood disorders, and she learned how to not only survive, but thrive. Some of the keys to getting through it all for her were 
talk therapy, medication, learning her triggers, and learning cognitive skills to get past feeling stigmatized. Prozac was an important ingredient in her survival and still is. Sleep and diet were important as well. No two depressions are the same. Each patient needs to become their own expert by finding what works for them. If you struggle with depression or low mood or extreme mood states, this is the book for you. Also, if you're a therapist and want additional insight and ideas, this is also a book for you. Or if you're a relative or friend of a sufferer, once again, this is a book for you. And the book is Living with Depression by Deborah Serrani. Dr. Dave, I'm continuously inspired and educated by your podcast. You interview such a wide variety of sophisticated and intelligent guests in such a graceful, well-orchestrated and easy-to-listen-to way. I learn so much from listening while I make art and organize my life. I want to make sure this podcast keeps up and running and will be supporting more as I am able to in the future. I'm currently just finishing up um, my master's degree at Southwestern College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, studying art therapy and counseling. Just want to say thanks for the many gifts your work offers others and much appreciation, and I hope to, as I said, donate more in the future, and I encourage others to do the same. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Santa Fe master's student. Thank you for your wish to see this program go forward and for your financial donation to that end and for encouraging other listeners to take similar action. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Typically, listeners support the show by choosing one of the PayPal levels on our support page, for example, $5, $10, $15, $20, or more for 12 months. The problem is PayPal doesn't necessarily let you or me know when your 12 months is up or offer you the option to continue. Instead, they require you to resubscribe. If you notice that they are no longer billing your credit card, please do resubscribe. It helps to know we have a steady, predictable income. And thank you for your precious support. Thanks to Dr. Deborah Sarani for her useful Living with Depression book and her warm interaction with me. Next week, my guest will be Alan Karbelnig, Ph.D., discussing his book, Lover, Exorcist, Critic, colon, Understanding Depth Psychotherapy. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. <laughs>